so Lyra, thank you very much for joining me and uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me. We are here to talk about MP Reverend Robert Bradford, who was uh, shot on the 14th of November 1981. First of all, tell us, Reverend Robert Bradford, who was the man? He's a really interesting guy, really complex guy. He was a Methodist minister and an M- the MP for South Belfast, and he was basically completely radicalised by the Troubles in some respects, and so he ran for election and was elected in 74. He ran for election in 73, but he was unsuccessful, and then he got the MP seat in 74. And so he served the community there for seven years. And he, ran, he was an Ulster Unionist. He's a really good... I've never... Of all the stories I've done, I've never come across anyone as complex as him. Where like the public persona is so different to the private persona, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so, but he will. You know, a lot of his constituents would say he was very good. He's remembered very fondly by the Unionist community. By in contrast with Ian Paisley, who don't, who you know, a lot of the Unionist community now really don't remember Paisley fondly at all. Yet Bradford has, he has been actually remembered quite quite well in that respect, which is which is interesting. You know, he said, you know, he said some really controversial stuff. For example, like he said that the he hoped the hunger strikers caught ammonia. But at the same time, when I actually started doing the research, I found something really interesting because a lot of people, you know, when when he when he was murdered by the IRA in nineteen eighty one, and they said he was killed for being they killed him because he stirred up the loyalist paramilitary machine and he was a bigot and all these things. But there's two really interesting things I found out. One, he was really at odds with loyalist paramilitaries. They didn't really like each other because he spoke out against them quite a bit. And he, you know, he accused he accused them of. This was at a time, remember, when like the UDA and these groups, people didn't really realize that they turned militant. Like I think there was like rumors on the ground, and there was little whispers about it here and there, in mm. the press. But it, you know, they weren't, you know, they didn't weren't prescribed until many years later. And he was one of the first ones, and one of the only um you know, politicians to turn around and point out the fact that these guys had gone militant. And that they were, you know, they were basically using the same tactics as the IRA. And he said that he couldn't hold his head high and criticise the IRA and not criticise them. But the other thing that I found was interesting was that he was, and I find this out from a Catholic community worker who later became a politician for another party, and she spoke to me for the book. And he was doing a lot of cross-community work in West Belfast, which is really fascinating. He worked there with a Catholic priest who was really popular called Matt Wallace. And the pair of them were trying to bring the two communities together because that was where he had ser- his one of his earliest ministries was. Mm. It was in Suffolk and West Belfast, which was like a sort of like a minority Protestant community there. And the two of them were trying to get these two communities to talk to each other. So yeah, so he's a really complicated, complex guy. It's like you know he has this public persona which is really hard line. But yet when you look at the stuff that was going on privately, which really hasn't been discussed or unearthed before, you, you get a much different picture. And it's almost like it's hard to kind of add the two up. And, you know, the conclusion that I came to, I mean, I commented this as a child of the Good Friday Agreement, which is, I think, why my perspective would probably be a lot different to maybe older nationalists who would really disagree with me. But I think that, like, if I look at some of the things that other politicians said during that time, like Jerry Adams, for example, said that, like, I was really shocked reading this, because even with the Smithic gap, I, I would never expect them to say this, but he said in 82 that, you know, about the murder of a, of a retired Stormont politician, that the only problem nationalists had with it was that he he wasn't murdered 40 years earlier. Now, Adams would never say anything like that today. 
Mm. And so I just I think that at that time people were so the stress was so high people were so radicalized. So it's eleven thirty a.m. eleven thirty a.m. on Saturday, November fourteenth, nineteen eighty one. Uh, three IRA gunmen uh, make their way into his uh, political clinic that he had on uh, at the time in I think it was Benmore Drive uh, in at Benmore Drive in uh, Finnegy in uh, South Belfast and um, they they shoot him five times another worker who was in the centre at the time he's shot dead as well what is the what is the aftermath of of the murder of Robert Bradford what happens in the in the days past that sorry to be a pedant he was actually shot six or seven times okay. um different media reports reported different numbers and the big problem i'm having at the moment and getting the actual number is that the public records office of northern ireland is currently has withheld the inquest report for 18 months um they say they're consulting on whether it released to me should have been released within 20 working days but unfortunately that is the disgrace that is northern ireland <laughs> public record system um in the aftermath, you know, we have some really horrible, brutal killings of uh, retaliation murders of young Catholics. You know, and one who is, I believe, I need to check my notes just to refresh my memory, but I believe he was only 18. Um, and it was, yeah, I mean, the whole mood of the place is just, if you look at the press reports at that time, uh, you know, they're all talking about how even John, like John Hume is talking about how the IRA just wants to provoke us in the civil war and all, you know, that's what, generally what the feeling was, that this was meant to cause anarchy. And I think it's a wonder that there wasn't more violence than there was. I mean, don't get me wrong, the loss of those young Catholics was absolutely horrendous. The fact that this grief then had to go visit other families is just atrocious. But I think that, you know, it was fairly contained somehow. How, I don't know. It, it amazes me looking back because I think that would have been the one thing that would have triggered total anarchy and it, and it somehow didn't. Um, I mean, at the funeral, Jim Pryor, who's the Secretary of State, is nearly mobbed by the crowd. Mm. They're so, like, the police had to rush him out at the end to get him into his car. Um, because the crowd was so angry and they were baying for blood. Um, you know, Robert's best friend, who was Roy McGee, who was taking the funeral, you know, called for capital punishment for those who had done it. The mood was just really, really dark. It's not a period I would have wanted to have lived through, I have mm. to say. Um, you know, and as I said, the fact that it wasn't, it didn't lead the absolute anarchy. I, I don't know how that happened. I do know that in the days after, um, Robert Bradford's wife spoke out and be, be, basically begged that no innocent Catholics would be harmed as a result because they knew that was what was going to happen, that there was going to be a retaliation from the mm. Loyalist paramilitaries. And she begged that this wouldn't happen. Unfortunately, it did. So but I suspect things may have been more constrained than... Uh, May the I suspect the reaction may have been more restrained as a result of that very personal plea. Hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, so, I, I think that maybe helped steady things, hmm. but I don't know what else was going on behind the scenes. It's been really hard actually to get hold of. I've been mean, I managed to get hold of some old intelligence documents and army documents. Um, 
but it's you know a lot it's funny how a lot of these documents have went missing mm. that's been a big issue you know and is there a case there for we, for for doing I suppose publicly doing what was needed to I suppose to survive in terms of you had to have a hard line you had to be there or or to be seen to be defending your your constituents or or, or something like that but but you know in, in, a, in a private it, yeah. life that they 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 were actually very different I think you, I think you're absolutely right actually because one of the things that uh, that camp community said to me worker said to me was that says we could not have talked about this I mean this was the first time she'd really talked about this work and the fact that he had been involved in it because she said his party would have turned against him said um, paramilitaries on both sides wouldn't have liked it and would have driven them all out so that, like it would have you know they were already all of them were already under threat so that would have just you know crippled it basically so yeah I think you've got it right that they all have yeah they were all playing these roles which are like really theatrical but when you get into it the the people behind it are really different mm. so it was you know it's like i'm someone who's only quite hard on politicians <laughs> i don't really trust them which is probably a byproduct of growing up in northern ireland but with him yeah it just it just really shocked me that you know there was this totally different side i think you summed it up in a way that i have not been able to articulate <laughs> that yeah, that they were all. Everyone was forced into these really polarized, you know, role, you know, positions. Like I think, mm. no matter what you think of Jerry Adams or um, Marty McGuinness, I think you could definitely say they're they've mellowed somewhat yeah, <laughs> compared to where they were. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it yeah, it was interesting perspective for me as well. I mean, I grew up in North Belfast on the interface, and it kind of helped me understand the troubles from a different perspective, and that. I, like, I don't agree with the choices a lot of people made. I don't think they were right. But you could sort of see how the human factor, that you have these humans who are in the middle of this war and things are so horrible and they're just reacting to it. I, I didn't realize, I grew up in North Belfast and I thought I knew how, how bad things were because I grew up on the interface in the 90s and you don't remember some of the things that happened mm. in the 2000s. And honestly, I have no idea. How, and that's to me as someone who grew up in Belfast would be, and would consider myself politically aware. It didn't. I didn't realize how horrible things were in the seventies and eighties until I started doing this book. Like, oh my god, I just couldn't believe it. It mm. was her. You don't really, you don't realize how horrible things were back then mm. until you're talking to the people who lived it and seeing it through their eyes and their experiences. And it's actually quite traumatizing. Like mm. you know, some of the things that they lived through and they. You know, and you think, oh my god, how did you go through this? Like, why didn't you get a green card and never create? Like, I'm surprised that we, you know, um, so yeah, it, it really opened my eyes, I have to say. Um, except what, I thought I was what ha- I mean, the the 14th of November 1981, he's uh, shot dead by, by the IRA. Do we have a kind of, uh, I suppose, a pattern of events or something like that that led up to to that point? Well, 1981 is a really rough year politically because you have the hunger strikes on. And obviously in May, he makes, or sorry, earlier that year, he makes these those comments about the hunger strikers, which, you know, really just, I think, brought the temperature up a bit too much, um, you know, um, mm. probably unintentionally. But, I mean, well, it's probably unfair to say they brought the temperature up but I think that time I mean from speaking to people at that time who lived through it they said a lot of them said to me so do you have no idea how horrible that period was to the hunger strikes um when I asked them why they said like he said one person told me about how friends were falling out 
friend, people who've been friends for years were falling out. And she said, in this library, actually, in the Queen's University Library, this is all you could hear was the sound of banging doors and people screaming at each other. So people were getting into these arguments who'd never argued about political things before, before you yeah. know? Um, I think the hunger strike itself just brought the temperature up. It just, ever, it was like, it just made things, really brought things to your head in some respects. Um, that's well, that's the impression I got from talking to people. I mean, I remember one friend of mine said about how her dad, who, you know, was a judge, and they were Catholic family, and she'd been driving home on holiday, and they heard on the news that one of the hunger strikers had died. And the dad said her dad stopped the car and just smacked the wheel, and he said he was just so angry. And I believe from what she told me was the more has made the comment that this was going to make everything ten times worse because they'd allowed these men to die. Mm. So, you know, I think 1981, if you're looking at any, all the years in the troubles were particularly bad, but if you're looking at any year, that's a really, really, really horrible, dark period. You know, all these emotions running high on all sides. Um, so there's that there, the lead of these murder. And I think, you know, he, it's, you know, why is anyone, why, why commit murder at all? We don't know. You know, it's really hard for someone like me or you to sit and fathom the logic of that. Because we wouldn't do it, you know. Mm. It's even harder when you're not in the middle of a conflict. Um, I but think- I mean, like, it's, it's, I mean, the thing is as well, uh, and we kind of touched on this be- before we started recording, was that there were, there were far more high profile um, leaders within the Protestant community. Uh, people who certainly um, said a a lot more who had a much much more harder line than Reverend Robert Bradford. Uh, you mentioned Ian, yeah. Ian Paisley, yes, of course, definitely. would be the, always come, the first one that comes to mind. So yeah, it's, it seems like, it seems. I mean, is he is he a uh, is he a casualty of the time? As you say, the heat was on, and and everybody had whose emotions were, were running high. Or or was there something more behind this? He his biggest problem politically was that he really just said what he thought and he really, you know, just blurted like blurted stuff out, you know. Mm. Or not even blurted stuff out, but he wouldn't have he didn't sugarcoat stuff and that mm. especially with his own party and what you find what I find through doing a lot of the research was one of the reasons that working class people really liked him because he called a spade a spade. Mm. He wouldn't have he was not and I think in many respects, he, he's almost like, like what's the word I'm looking for? He wasn't, I wouldn't describe him as tactical. Do you know, I don't think, like, he had followed the party leadership. There was, you know, always difficulties there because he had contradicted the leaders and what they thought. And he just said, was well, he, I he, think this. Was, was he a bit of a maverick? Did he shoot from the hip? He, he, he was, was a, yeah, he was, a, yeah, that's right. He was an absolute maverick. So he wasn't high up within the party because he didn't play the game. Mm. No, he could, he was not, I do not get the impression that he was someone who would lift up like at all. He was, which is why I know that someone said to me, um, about how they, because the the old boys found him very difficult to cope with because mm. he was, you know, he, yeah, he, he didn't really do it. well. Not that he, I don't want to say he didn't do as what he was told, but just that he was his own man. Mm. You know, he wasn't someone. Like I do believe that you know around that time you get a number of politicians who really, you know, in it to help their communities. 
and they're few and far between, but I would say him and Jerry Fit were two of those. They were actually good friends. They, I think they were two of those people. So I don't think it wasn't, I don't believe it was about power. I don't think that was his motivation. Mm. You know, uh, like everyone has their weaknesses, but I, I don't get that impression with him because he doesn't. If you look at other people within the party at that time and how they're positioned and what roles they're given, um, you know, he, like he wouldn't have been a confidant of Jim Malmo's. Mm. You know, I think he would have worked behind the scenes to help him. That's what I've been told by a confidant to Jim Malmo that you know he would have worked behind the scenes and tried to help him push certain things. But you know, they were often at loggerheads for policy. Um, especially in the later years and so I don't so for that reason like even you know there was NIO files released which he, in which he said in which it says that you know he's not very high up within the party machinery and I think that was for that reason mm. you know because he wasn't someone who like I said, he didn't play the game in the way that Paisley did. And so he wasn't, like, you know, for example, when we talk about the murder of Edgar Graham, we, the you know the logic apparently behind that murder was that Edgar was going to be the future leader of the party, that he was really intelligent, that he was um, tactical, and that he was going to be this great weapon for the Unionist Party one day. And I think, of course, Bradford was very intelligent, not disputing that. But I, he wasn't... Um, I think in many ways he wasn't a political animal, hmm. you know, which I think is something you tend to find with working class people, especially, you know, the whole, the playing the games is more a, a middle class thing. Hmm. It's whereas working class or, you know, it's a friend of mine jokes, about you know, you sell in your scores with headbutts. Yeah. If you're a working yeah. class, if you're working class Belfast, you know, and he was a working class Belfast man. Hmm. And what about you yourself? Uh, you've spent two years on this. Um, you're currently looking for funding as well, which people can find on uh, beaconreader.com forward slash projects, uh, the last story of Robert Bradford. People can find you there and, and watch your, your story and, and the book you've been working on for the past two years. And what do you hope comes from this book? What is your what is your goal here? Well, the Crowdfunder actually finished yesterday. Mm-hmm. And you hit your and, target? Yep, I hit, hit my targets, thankfully, 109% funded. So over the moon, because today is my 24th birthday, so it was a nice it was a nice birthday present. Correction, it finished at 2 a.m. this morning, excuse mm. me. Um, so, yeah, so I'm absolutely over the moon. I guess, you know what's the goal? Uh, you know what? My goal is just... I. I just want to know what this last story was. If it's there, and I think it is, I want to know what it was, and that's my goal. And it's really my own curiosity. I mean, that's what the only reason I ever do stories. So I don't, I never really have an agenda. I'm just, well, I suppose my, I do have an agenda in the sense that I just, I want to know. I have this curiosity for things. I just constantly want answers to everything. And, you know, some things, I mean, stories for me are like, I, I hate to use this word when it's such a serious subject, but I have so much fun chasing stories. I, I, like, I really do. Like, I've never worked a day in my life from that perspective, you know? Mm. And so for me, every story is just, it's like reading a great book. And I want to find answers. And but to find answers and to turn the next page, I have to go and dig the answers up myself, mm. you know? And it, it, it's, for me, it's like, it's, like a, it's like a huge adventure, you know, um, so 
I hate. I I would like to. As professionally speaking, I would love to advance the story along. You know, I would love to actually have a produce an authoritative count, which you know hopefully answers a lot of the questions that people have. And hmm. um, you know, and I would really like to find out. You know, what this la- they either prove or disprove the rumor that the, he was working on something before he died. That he was asking questions about something. You know, because I think, you know, where there's an absence of truth, people make up their own. But generally, there's always an element of truth in something, you know, in these rumors. And it's maybe never, it's never as sexy as, you know, the original theory. But there's always an element of truth when you dig deep enough. Mm. Um, but I think other than that, as I said, you know, I, I really love what I do. I love it so, so much. And every day I get up, I just cannot wait to get started. So for me, like... I you know the 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 story doing the story itself is an end in itself. It's the destination, you know. I you know I do feel that the stories I do that I hope that you know I'm that I'm somehow helping that I'm somehow contributing to the work. It's the only thing I think I'm good at is trying to find answers to things. Mm. And what about the the legacy of of Robert Bradford, Reverend Robert Bradford? You mentioned earlier that this was perhaps a man who was who was radicalized by the environment that he found himself in. Yeah. Is it is it perhaps that he that he that he himself found himself being changed by by as you mentioned that that heat the 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 pressure that was in the air the emotion that was in the air at the time and um you know that that here was a guy who was who was trying as you as you mentioned he was working with catholic communities to to try and resolve situations that were there but just got caught up in what as you've described was was a time that was just incredibly incredibly difficult to live through yeah i mean you know i think that's actually one of the sad things because he you know, among the nationalist community and among the Catholic community, he he does have this reputation, and you know, I've gotten a lot of grief because if I was a unionist, it would be okay for me to say that. You know, I don't think that he was that bad, but if, because I'm a Catholic, that's really, really you know naughty of me. Um, but I actually, I do you know what I think. Well, I was talking to you know someone, one of his colleagues, who said to me, we were talking about how. Um, he said that whenever they were going through the Good Friday, before the Good Friday Agreement negotiations started, he said, I always knew Trimble would do a deal. And he said, and if Robert had lived, he'd have done the deal too, because he would have wanted peace. In fact, Robert's wife, whenever David Trimble was getting a lot of stick about going in the power of a Sinn Féin from his own party, um, Robert Bradford's wife wrote to him to tell him that, and this is in Trimble's biography, he, she, he wrote, she wrote to him to tell him to take the deal, to go into peace because the country had basically had enough and it was time to move on and to not let Robert's death, you know, hold him back. So when someone the next day then pointed, got up, one of his party got up and said, and what about Robert Bradford? And, you know, you're selling people like Robert out. And, and he then read this letter, which I think silenced a lot of the critics. Mm. So, you know, when you look at when you consider that, like, I thought that was really big of her to do. I mean, to be able to forgive, you know, mm. uh, I thought that was huge. But it did make me wonder, God, well, then, you know, other people saying that Robert probably would have taken the deal. I think he probably would have. I think it would have been a different period. And But I think it's one of the sad things that you didn't really get to see, that we didn't really get to see the person that he would have become, you know, that, or not that he would have become, 
Well, that he promised know, to be. Yes, that that he didn't really get to see. I think he would have become a peacemaker, and I think we didn't. You know, I think he got cut short. You know, and I think I think that's quite sad in some ways. Because you know he did do a lot of good things in the background, and I just I do feel that he got caught up, just got caught up in everything. And you know it's the same though when I talk to you know I have friends who on both sides who are ex paramilitaries, and you know when I talk to my friends say who are, I think things are always more complicated than they seem. And I think in Northern Ireland especially we try to put labels on people. And when I talk to my friends who are you know ex paramilitary and. Okay, I would never expect the victims to think like this. But these are people who are genuinely sorry for the things that they've done. But when you ask them, why did you do it? Why, I, like I've, I've had this conversation so many times with people who were ex-IRA or ex-UVF. And I, when I asked them, why did you join? I've never once gotten the answer. I joined Book for United Ireland or I joined for Gone Monster. It was, I joined because I thought I was protecting my community. And there was almost this naivety with these people that they thought that, oh, we'll just go and, you know, whenever the bad men come in, we'll shoot back at them. And in some ways, it was like the war, they signed up to fight. Well, not all of them, but for some of them, you know, they like for, if you're joining the IRA, you know, they didn't sign up to go and shoot innocent Protestants. They, you know, they signed up to shoot the bad guys in their head. And you've got to understand, these were like 16, 17-year-old kids at the time. Uh, you can see, and same for those on the loyalist side. Now, again, that's I'm probably talking about a minority here rather than um, a majority. But you know, my understanding of why people join the IRA, trying to join the UVF, was always that oh, they joined because they were bad men, you know. Mm. And actually, when you sat down and talked to them, and you know, it was it wasn't it wasn't that they they you know they did evil things. But they didn't start off evil. A lot of them were 16, 17-year-olds who were manipulated by older men. And, and they made that decision after one night after their dad was shot or their dad was interned without trial or, you know, just something. So when I looked at, you know, when I looked at that, it was through going through the book that I started to have these conversations. And I realized just that everything was so much more complex than we think. And, you know, we tend to put people into these... I think we talk about the troubles. We talk about good guys and bad guys. And don't get me wrong, I think there's plenty of good guys and bad guys on both sides. But I think you also have people who are just humans who are reacting to really horrible circumstances. Mm. And they make mistakes. And now they're living with them. And you know, a lot of them are trying to make amends for what they've done. But And some of them aren't, and some of them aren't sorry. You know, and I have no sympathy for that lot. But, you know, it was... Yeah, so I think that... Yeah, I think on both sides we need to be a lot more forgiving of each other because the reason that people do things and the reasons they do the things they do aren't always that clear cut, you know? Um, and as I said, we do, we have, we're terrible for sticking labels on each other. Larry McKee, uh, the last story of Robert Bradford is what you're working on and the I suppose the story of a journalist uh, with uh, an insatiable desire to uh, find uh, the truth or to find a story behind the man as well. And uh, that's, uh, that's a pretty good story too. Uh, Lyra, if people want to find out more or indeed um, uh, see the book or, or perhaps uh, anything like that, where can they find more information? Uh, go to beaconreader.com and you'll be able to find the project there beaconreader.com and it's the last story of Robert Bradford as well and that's uh, how, how you you will I'll say that again 
beaconreader.com and the, the last story of Robert Bradford, uh, journalist and reporter Lyra McKee. Thank you very much for joining us uh, here on irishexaminer.com. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Kel.